you have not been with us, uh, we are in Joel. Surprise, right? Who does a study in Joel? Well, there's a lot of churches that do. And, you know, it's funny studying this. I was looking at some of what other churches do. You know, you, you kind of listen to God's word through God's people at times. And you hear, there's a lot of people doing like one-off sermons on the whole book of Joel. And we're like diving in deep, which is heavy. Has this felt heavy? No? Okay, praise God. Praise God. Hopefully it doesn't. It's felt heavy sometimes. This morning is going to feel heavy sometimes. But, but, but it's not a heaviness for heaviness' sake. It's a heaviness that's a, a call back to the Lord. You know, if you were with us two weeks ago, Phil kicked off this series. Pastor Phil talked about the invitation that this is. So Joel is a prophet, and he talks about, uh, he talks to the people of Judah about this locust plague that either is happening right now in real time or just recently happened. And, and, and he says, this should stop you in your tracks and wake you up, this devastation that's happening. And Phil pointed out to us that this isn't just something to mourn and weep, but this is an invitation from God to turn. And so week one, we saw that all of Joel is an invitation from Father God for us to return to him. And then last week, if you were with us, we finished out chapter one. Pastor Mark preached about how finding God is a destination, right? So the first week was invitation. Last week was destination. That finding God is the destination. And fasting and mourning, these are two stops along the way. We're gonna see those stops again in today's passage. But the ultimate destination is to find God, to return to him. And this morning, if I were to put a word on this morning, I would say it's revelation. It's revelation. It's that in the midst of our circumstances, God wants to reveal something about who he is and who we are. You know, you know my favorite kind of stories, my favorite kind of movies or books are, are the ones with a plot twist. Anybody like ones with a really good plot twist? It's like the whodunit mystery and you're watching all along and you just know it's this guy and then all of a sudden at the end you find out it's the one you never suspected. Right? Who is Kaiser Soze? Anybody remember that movie? Oh, a few people remember that reference. It was somebody we never, the, the ultimate mastermind criminal was somebody we never suspected. I love those movies that have the plot twist that you're watching the story and you know where it's going, you know where you've been, but all of a sudden they pull the rug out from under you and it changes everything that you've seen so far. Right? And, and, and the tables get flipped. And you realize the story you're watching is not the story you thought you were watching. It's changed completely. And Joel this morning, as we walk through this, he's going to do this to us. He's going to pull the rug out from under us. You know what happens when I see those movies that all of a sudden, like in the last 10 minutes, everything changes? Oh, I want to watch it again. I want to watch it again and see and see what I missed and find what I missed. But that's about it. It was a good movie. I'll watch it again, but I'll walk away. Do you, do you know God pulls the rug out from us? Not just so that we want to read it again, but so that our, our lives are changed. God wants to throw a twist in us to open our eyes to things that our eyes aren't open to. But it's not just to open our eyes and say, wow, it's, it's to break our hearts. This morning we're going to hear an alarm call for the people of God. God wants to wake us up. But it's not just for the purpose of waking us up. It's to break our hearts. That's something we need him for. That's something we can't do. That's something we'll shrug off and just walk out of here unchanged. But for him. So let me me pray and invite him to work in us as we work through his word. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. 
I thank you that your word is powerful. It is living and active. And you have a work to do in our hearts right now. Even even as we read this passage that is difficult in some places, you have life to offer us. You have an invitation. So God, we receive and we say yes right now to your invitation, God, whatever it is. I pray that you would focus the thoughts of my mind and that they would be your thoughts and not my thoughts. I pray that you would speak through the words of my mouth and that they, in spite of my brokenness, would be your words, Lord. Purge us, God, this morning. Purge us of anything that is not of you. We will glorify you and we will thank you for it. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So Joel chapter 2 is what we are in this morning. We are going to be starting in verse 1. And the way this is going to unfold, usually I read the whole passage and then I jump back. I'm not going to do that this morning because I like a good story that pulls the rug out from under you. So we're just going to read bit by bit and allow, allow the rug to be pulled out from under us as, as we read. So Joel Chapter 2, verse 1 starts like this. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. So chapter 1, Joel was pointing back either to a locust invasion that was just, had just happened or was happening present day. And now chapter 2, he flips his vision forward and he points forward and he says there's coming a day. There's coming, coming something else that is going to make this feel familiar. Oh, but it's, but it's different. And, and Joel talks about this as what is coming. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. And you'll remember if you're with us, the day of the Lord is this theme that Joel touches on and, and lands on throughout his whole book. But the, the day of the Lord is a theme that runs through all of Scripture. And it's this day that the people of God looked forward to as a day of restoration. It's a day of reckoning where God's justice comes in full on the whole earth. And it's a day of restoration of the people of God. And so the day of the Lord is something the people of God look forward to. And yet Joel right here is saying, there's an alarm about this day and you need to blow the trumpet in Zion too. Like it's not just, the warning call is not just for the people out there. The problem is not just out there. It's right here in Judah. It's on God's holy hill. It's right where the temple is. Let all who live in this land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times nor ever will be in ages to come. Now you think Joel, like... He's just walked these people through paying attention to the the locust invasion that just happened, right? And you think he would say, hang in there, guys, it's going to get better. Like, don't worry, just hold on, it's going to get better. And he doesn't. He says, you think this is bad? Oh, it's going to get worse. He, He has hope for us. Don't lose sight of that. He has hope for us, and it's coming today. But first he's going to say, listen, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. This is what it's going to look like. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like a garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. Does this sound like familiar? From chapter 1, it sounds like the locust invasion, right? So maybe another locust invasion coming. 
They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry with a noise that is like the chariots. They leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire, consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses. Like thieves, they enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. Heavy, right? What's happening here? I mean, some people read this and they think he's talking about another locust invasion. But some of this language, maybe it's soldiers he's talking about. There's commentators who read this and say, thinks because of the, some of the language they, he uses that he's talking about tanks and Apache heli- helicopters. So, so, so what is it? Is it? Is it locusts? Is it soldiers? Is it tanks and helicopters? Yes? No? I don't know. Like, we look at this, and here's what we want. We want from this what we want from all prophecy. We want the decoder ring, right? We we want, like, okay, like, tell me exactly what this means and exactly how this is going to play out. But but that's not the point of prophecy in our lives. Do you know that? The the point of prophecy in our lives is not for us to figure out exactly how everything is going to go down. Somebody once said about Revelation, the, the point of Revelation is not for us to figure it all out. It's for us to know that God has it all figured out and the rest of us are just guessing. And so, so as we face this and, and try to wrestle with it, it doesn't mean we try to, don't try to understand what this might mean. It just means that we, we don't strive to, make, to, to dot every I and cross every T and figure out the decoder ring of what everything in here means because prophecy is a window to let us in on the news that God has a bigger plan and for that to change our hearts now. Remember what what Phil quoted from Chuck Chuck Swindoll the first week. He said, prophecy can feel really, really distant, but it should remind us and awaken us to to following God every single day. And, And so... We don't know exactly how this is going to play out. I can tell you one thing for sure. This does have a specific fulfillment. Some people think this, probably more than one specific fulfillment. Some some people think this was fulfilled when Assyria invaded Israel and Judah later on after this prophecy was given. That was a short-term fulfillment. But all agree that there is a long-term fulfillment coming, that there's a day still down the road where this will be fulfilled. And you can be sure that it will be fulfilled specifically, even though we don't know exactly how it's going to play out. We're given this window to prompt us to a response now. And so let's see what response it prompts in us. So here's this enemy coming against not just the enemies of Judah, but Judah itself. Here's the army pouring down the mountains and marching against them. And I want you to imagine in your mind's eye this army and watch the camera pan forward across this army. Whether it's locusts you see in your mind or soldiers with spears and swords or helicopters and tanks, the camera pans to the front. And what's at the front of the army? The Lord thunders at the head of his army. Do you feel the rug just get pulled out from under us? His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Wait, this enemy that was coming against, what, what are we going to do in face of this enemy 
that is coming against us, well, of course we're going we're gonna to call out to God. We're going to repent. We're going to turn. Yes, we're going to get there. But first, Joel needs to pull, pull the rug out from under us. Turns out this enemy army has the Lord at the front. And some people look at this and say, well, look, see, the Lord is against you. He's the enemy. No, 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 that's not, that's not the point. It's for us to realize, like, this army that was marching against us, we thought it was the armies of Mordor, right? We thought it was the white witch and her minions marching against us. No, it's the Lord and his army. What if God is not who you thought he was? What if God is not who you thought he was? And, and what if we aren't either? I, I mean, if the Lord is marching against us, and he's not the enemy because he's God, what does that make us? Ooh, the enemy? Really? Joel pulls the rug out from under us to see the Lord at the head of the army. And for some of you, maybe you grew up with this vision of God as an angry God and you heard that he was ready to crush you and step on you for every little wrong thing you've done. And you look at this and you say, see, I knew it, he's against me. Listen, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. That's not, that's not true. He is not against you. Even when he looks like he's against you, he is for you. You want proof? Look at the cross. We'll get there. But listen, first we need to camp out here a, a, a minute because some of us have heard so often that God is on our side, that God is for you, that you are God's people. This is what Judah heard. They were God. They grew up hearing this. You are God's chosen people. God is for you. And you know what they ended up here? They heard it so often. God is for you. You are God's chosen people. Those things were true. But then what they started hearing was God is on your side. God is on your side no matter what. Ooh, hang on a second. Maybe we've got the wrong reference point there. See, the question isn't if God is on our side, but are we on his? The question isn't if God is on our side, are we on his? See, I, I don't know about you, I grew up in Western Christianity and in in the, in the church and heard all along about how God was for us and God is on our side and those things are true. But it doesn't mean God agrees with everything we agree with. Some of us have taken that to mean when, when we say yes to Jesus, we kind of inherit this notion that Jesus automatically agrees with everything that makes sense to us. Oh, that's not, that's not true. That's not the case. See, the question isn't if God is on our side but are we on his? Joshua was about to fight a battle with the people of Israel, coming into the promised land against Jericho, against the heathen nations. And he, in the middle of the night, an armed man stands before him, and he knows it's, it's someone holy. It's an angel or maybe the Lord himself before him. But he knows this man is dangerous. And Joshua says to the man, Are you for us or for our enemies? Are you for us or for our enemies? I mean, those are the only two options, right? Are you for us or for our enemies? It's a simple either or question. You know what the man says? No. No, no. But I am the commander of the Lord's army. I am the commander of the Lord's army. And, and Joshua says, oh, wait a second. 
Let me not forget that there's something bigger than, than this issue right in front of me. There's something bigger than me and my enemy. There, there's, a, there's a God, and it's not so much as he on my side. Am I on his side? And you know what Joshua does is he falls at his feet. And he says, Lord, what do you have to say to me? And Joel here, I think, is inviting us to a place where we fall at his feet and say, Lord, what do you have to say to me? Where we stop assuming that God is on our side and where we start to question, are we on his? This plays out in every area of our lives. Politics, ooh, you ready for this? I mean, I, mean, I grew up in conservative and I politically am generally conservative. But we can make this argument that God is on a certain side of the aisle. God doesn't have a side of the aisle. I know there's certain issues to talk about. Believe me, God has things to speak into those issues. But, but we've taken up and we try to figure out who our enemy is. So we can figure out who it is and focus on them. Because, because we've got God on our side because of this issue and this issue and this issue. Oh, but wait a minute, you look on the other side of the aisle and they've got this issue and this issue and this issue. And isn't God for, for both? So, so who is God for? Is he for red or for blue? For us or for our enemies? No. No. There's another option. Is there possibly another option? I mean, in this divisive political culture, is there possibly another option? I'm not talking about changing your party. I'm talking about how you walk out your values and beliefs. It's not just about how you vote. It's about how you speak and think every day. Is there another option than either or? Do we need to question, are we actually on God's side? You know, Jesus called 12 disciples to him. You know who was among them? There was this guy named Simon. And he was a zealot. He was completely opposed to the established government. And he was working actively to overthrow that government. You know who else Jesus invited to be one of his disciples? Matthew, who's a tax collector. Actively working to uphold and support the current government. Oh, how do you think that went? I don't think that was pretty all the time. And yet Jesus called them both. And somehow, I'm sure it was not pretty, but somehow they, they took their allegiances of one side or the other, of for, for or against. Are you my enemy or you're on my side? And they laid that down in submission to a greater submission. Matthew and Simon both laid aside their convictions to both follow a greater government. Can we? I mean, can we? Can we lay aside some of these lesser loyalties to follow the loyalty that we should all share in the church? Can we be unified? That's what we're praying about. Pray SYC. Can the church be unified? Can it ever in this political uh, climate? Can we ever? Can we be for the unborn and for the mother too? Can we be for the poor? And, and can we be for the other issues that we feel so strongly about? And can instead of saying, I've got God on my side, can we, 
can we stop for a second and ask if we're on his? You say, you say well, well, I guess you're saying I shouldn't hold any stance, right? Shouldn't hold any opinion, shouldn't hold any position on these things. Oh, no, 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 I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, don't assume God agrees with you on every topic, but take every topic and issue to God and see, do you agree with him? So, so let's take, you want something more divisive than politics? Let's take the, the cultural discussion that is in our faces every day, especially this month of Pride Month. Gender and sexual orientation are before us every day, and the culture has this, this litany and this ideology that's put in front of us every day. And you say, well, are you saying I'm not supposed to pick a side? No, no, no. God, God has things to speak into this. We have, a, we have a culture during Pride Month that is loudly proclaiming about their belief that gender is fluid. So choose whatever you want. Are we not supposed to take a stance? Oh, oh, no, we are. God has definitive and clear things to say about this. The, the word is clear that gender is not some social construct. You just choose what you want. He, he wrote it in the pages of Scripture that he created mankind, male and female, with intention. He, he wrote it not just in Scripture. He wrote it into our very DNA. And into our very DNA, we don't get to choose this stuff. Like, listen, I know, I know some of you right now are like, you're disagreeing with me. I, I, I just encourage you, go back here. There are things that God is clear on that we think he's not clear on. He's clear on. Sexual orientation. I think it's just oh, personal, personal preference. Choose what you want. Doesn't matter. Just have fun. And yet God set certain boundaries on our sexual activity in our lives. And he said it's, part of, it's to be part of a covenantal relationship between one male and one female. Because it's a picture of the gospel and how the gospel is lived out. We can look at a godly marriage between a man and a woman and see how, how Christ relates to the church and how the church relates to Christ. And it's an imperfect picture. But that's the point of it. The point of it isn't to have fun. The point of it is that it's a picture of him. And I know, I know there's some of you who disagree. Hang, hang with me, please. Like, we'll, we'll get there. But here, here's the point I want to make right now. Is that we come to these things that God is clear on and we say, well, well shouldn't I take a stand? Shouldn't I make a choice? Or should I just, like, figure, I, I, I don't know. What am I supposed to do? No, there's things God is clear on. And it, there are clear choices to make. It's just not the clear choices that we think. It's not just the, uh, uh, are you on my side or my enemies? Are you for me or against me? But, it, but it's a way to submit all of us to God himself and say, are, are we on God's side? See, the Pharisees came with an instance just like this to Jesus. They came with a woman who is clearly in sexual sin, completely against God's law. There, there's no ifs, ands, buts, completely against. And they said, Jesus, the law says stoner. What are we going to do? Are you, do you hear it? Do you hear the question? Are you for or against us? Because God's on our side. That's what the Pharisees are saying. God's on our side. You for or against us? And Jesus says no. <laughs> Effectively, right? He, he says no. He says what? Uh, neither do I condemn you to the woman. 
He responds in love and compassion and invites her to him. Neither do I condemn you. So, so can we stop throwing stones at those we disagree with, especially around these issues, these volatile issues of gender and sexual orientation? Can we stop throwing stones just because they disagree with us? That is not how Jesus responded. Put the stones down. But he didn't stop there. I mean, we hear put the stones down. Absolutely, put the stones down. Love is love. Man, we just love, love, love. Jesus was love. Oh, no, 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 no. Did you hear what he said next? He said to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. See, there's a right way and there's your way. And, I, and I'm calling you to the right way. I'm calling you to my way. I'm calling you to me. So why are you going your own way? Why would you go? Uh, there is a way that seems right unto a man and it leads to death. Why would you go that way? I know it seems right. I know it feels right, but it's not right. You know who said so? God. So, so can we be people who stop? Stop saying this is black and white. Stop saying God's on my side and start asking, if, are we on his yeah, I know, I know scripture says this, stand firmly for that, but do so in love and without condemnation, even for those who disagree. Can we do that? We'll, we'll come back here. We'll come back here. But like, this is God's question. We, we spend so much time assuming God's on our side, we don't stop to ask, are we on his? Do you know how Jesus stopped the Pharisees short? He said the point of the law What's the point of law? He says, he is who is without sin Throw the first stone. That's when the stones dropped. How do we become a people who don't carry our stones? We listen to Jesus when he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. He says to him, listen, the point of the law, first and foremost, the point of the law is not for you to pick up a stone. It's for your heart to break. Is your heart broken? Not over their sin, over your sin. Is your heart broken? And, and God shows up at the head of an army against Judah. This is coming. And, and, and Joel is asking, listen, is your heart broken? Are, are you convicted? Here's what he says. Even now, declares the Lord, return. That's the answer. We knew it was coming. This is the answer. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Rend your heart and not your garments. Fast, mourn, and weep. These are the responses that, that Mark talked about last week. And remember, they're not, they're not the destination. This is the, the destination is him. These are stops along the way. And, and that's why Joel says, rend your heart and not your garments. Because the Pharisees screwed it up. The people of Judah had it screwed up. They thought the point was to rip their garments to show everybody else how grieved they were, to show God how grieved they were, to prove on the outside. But, but he says, rend your heart and not your garments, not because it's wrong to rip your garments, but because there's a, there's a chance that you could rip your garments and for it to not reach your heart. I wonder how often that happens for us. Like, like there's a way to do everything right on the outside. There's a way to look like I, I, I'm all in this thing. There's a way to have my quiet time there's a, there's a way to have my quiet time, to be with Jesus, to sing the songs, to come here, raise my hands, close my eyes, feel all the feels, to check all the boxes and look like it's great on the outside. And, and there's a chance that my heart is still far from him. 
Surrender your hearts. And by the way, for all of us in this room who are like, yeah, let's tell those charismatics. Like, it's not about the outside, right? Tell them. Can I tell you, it's also possible to sit there with stand there with your hands in your pockets, solemn-faced. I did this for years because I'm a contemplative. <laughs> it's still possible for me to sit there in my quietness and contemplate and my heart to be far from him. We've got to ask ourselves, are we rending our hearts, not just our garments? Are we not checking the boxes, but is this getting down deep? Because it's possible to change the outside and have the inside go unwashed, right? I think there's another reason he says, rend your heart and not your garments, and it's this, because the problem is far deeper than we thought. It's far deeper than we thought. I read this this week, and I was like, okay, rend your heart. i got to rend my heart. And I would sit there, and i sit, sit with the Lord and pray and like try to rend my heart, and I'm trying to, nothing's happening, you know? Like, I'm just, like, rend, rend my heart. Okay, like, I just, God, I'll, I'll be back in a little bit. Let me just find the seam in this darn thing. I can't, I can't find a, I can't, maybe I need some spiritual scissors or something. I rend your hearts. I can't, I can't do it. You, you can't do this on your own. Like, this isn't something just like a box to check or, or, or something to, to work really hard at. The problem is for deeper than we thought. See, this happened for a man who came to Jesus with his son. His son was demon-possessed. And he had been struggling with this for years. And he comes to the disciples because they're disciples of Jesus, and he asks them to heal his son, and they can't do it. And he comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, heal my son. Would you cast out the demon? Heal my son if you can. And Jesus, the great thing is, Jesus is going to take care of the demon. But there's something else that has to happen first. Not for the demon to be cast out. It's just that the problem is deeper. It's not just that the demon needs cast out. Jesus says, if, if I can. Is that what you said? If, if I can? Oh, and the man realizes it probably isn't just the demon and his son. It's the, it's the disbelief in him. Like this has gone on so long that he started to believe lies about who Jesus is and about limitations on Jesus' power. Like, I don't know what circumstances you have in your life, but are there circumstances that have caused you, that you think the circumstance just needs fixed? If just, God would just get in here and do this and change my circumstance, and God would say to us, the problem is far deeper. Are there lies you're believing because this has gone on so long? I need you to see the truth about me. Lord, I believe, this is, what can we do? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I need you to even believe in you. Rend your heart and not your garments. Here's the good thing. This, doesn't, this isn't another thing, box to check. You're like, i got to come to the Lord with this? What am I supposed to do? Remember the prodigal son? He was stuck in the, stuck in the pigsty. He was stuck there, and he finally realized things were better off at his father's house. And you know what he decided? I'm going to go back, and I'm going to earn my dad's love. I'm going to work, I'm going to be a slave, to him. I'm going to be a servant to him. And I'm going to work. And, and, and a lot of times we can read passages like this and say, rend my heart. Okay, I'm going to do this, God, and I'm going to earn your love. That's, that's not the way back. That's not what guarantees restoration. You're like, what, what's the guarantee then? Lord, the Lord is the commander of this army that's coming against me? I'm supposed to get, what else can I do but work my way back to him? What else can I do except shape up? 
What if God is not who we thought he was? Our restoration will come not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Here's the thing. Even when we're convicted of sin, we think our issue is to shape up. We think our need is to add something else to the list. Try to find the seam in our hearts so that we can rip it. And it's really just to come to him because the guarantee of our restoration is not because of who we are. It's because of who he is. Do, Do you know... Okay. Yeah. A couple weeks ago, President Biden, President of the United States, stood on the White House lawn at the Pride celebration. Oh, you're all uncomfortable. I can see it. So am I. It's hard to walk in these waters, isn't it? That's why we go hand in hand with him. President Biden said a lot of things at that, but one of the things he said in the speech was. To all those gathered before him, you are loved. You are accepted. You belong. Here's the problem with that. The problem is not that those people aren't loved. The problem is not that you and I aren't loved. It's just, can you read between the lines? Why is the President of the United States saying that? Because cultural opinion approves of it. This is why you can know you're loved. This is why you can know you belong. Because cultural opinion is shifting your way. Because others approve of you. What about when they don't? What's that going to do to your worth? What's that going to do to your value? So, so, listen, I agree 100% with the President of the United States when he says to uh, to all of them who are gathered on the White House lawn. You are loved. They are. But they're not loved because culture approves of them. They're loved because the creator of the universe loves them. And it's not based on who they are. They aren't accept, They aren't loved because of their choice of gender. Because they're free to make their own choice. They're loved because God created them with intention and purpose. And he is pursuing them right now. And he paid the price of their lives with the very life and blood of his son. And their restoration will come not not because of who they are or what they choose. It's going to come because of who God is and their agreement with it. Just like it did for you and me. If you're in Jesus Christ, we can't do this on our own. We need the word of God to pierce us. Is the word of God piercing? It's pierced, pierced me this week. I, I showed up here this morning praying and I just like, I, I don't even know what to say. I'm pierced. Like I don't even know how to approach this. Are we, are we silenced sometimes by the word of God? Are we convicted? We need, we need the word of God to do. We need the spirit of God. It's a work that only he can do because we can't get into the seams. We need the people of God. Listen, we met as pastors this week to plan this. and some We wept together. We'll get to this. We'll, we, we wept together. We grieved over what was happening in this culture. I'll, I'll get to why we grieve, but... Like this, we can't do this on our own. Our restoration will come not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Who is he? Listen, return to the Lord your God for he is gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. 
He's abounding in love and he relents from sending calamity. Joel here is quoting a verse from Exodus 34, way back when Moses was talking to God. And you know what Moses said? Show me your glory, God. Will you show me who you are? And God puts him in the corner of a rock because to see the whole of who God is would blow Moses away. So he says, Moses, I'm going to protect you from me because I'm too big, I'm too grand, I'm too holy, I'm too glorious. But, but I'm going to let you catch a glimpse. I'm going to tell you my name. And it's like God flashes his ID, right? God gets out his driver's license and shows it to Moses. You know, what's your driver's license? Why do you have photo ID? To prove who you are, right? Like in the things that are listed on the photo ID, I left mine in the, but, but the things that are listed, it's, it's your height, right? And your, your hair color and your eye color and your gender and your address. It's all the things that aren't going to change about you, right? And it's your weight and, well, that might, that might change a little bit, but. But, it, but it's those things that identify you as you. This is how you know I'm Ben Lawrence. I can show you my ID. And you can tell and you can look at that and you can look at me and you can say, yep, this is, this is the guy, this is him. And God says, Moses, I'm going to show you my ID. I'm going to tell you my name. You want to know how it's me? You want to know who I am? This is really who I am. At the most important part of who I this is this is what it is. I am gracious. I'm compassionate. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love. And I relent. I show mercy to thousands, he says. To thousands. This is who our God is. See that story you've heard all along about God waiting to crush us? Oh, he'll show up. And it looks like at times he's against us, but he's against us because he's for us. You say, I don't understand that. You will. Just get to know him. You will. Sometimes he has to come against my flesh so that I know he's for me. And this is who he is. He's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love. And it's like that prodigal son. Remember when he ran back to the father? And he was going to tell him, like, I'm going to earn your love back. I'm going to, I, I, he's got his whole speech prepared. He's got his whole speech. I'm going to work for you, and I, I'll work seven days a week, and, and I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to be the best one of all your workers, and I'll keep everything clean. I'll do double duties. I'll do extra shifts. He's got his whole speech prepared, and he can't even start it because the father interrupts him. This is my son, you're alive. Says the father, the father in that story. You know, we talk about that story as the prodigal son. Somebody once said that story could be called the prodigal father. You know, the, the, because the word prodigal, you know what it means? It means recklessly extravagant. The son was recklessly extravagant, wasn't he? I mean, he took all his money and he spent it all on, wasted it. He was extravagant. Like it didn't even make sense what he was doing. He was out of his mind. The, the literal language is that he was out of his mind. And then he came back to his senses. And he went home and he found a father who was a prodigal. A father who was what? A father who was recklessly extravagant. Who was so generous it didn't make sense. Not for the son who went away. That son asked for an inheritance and acted like the father was dead. Dad, I don't want you. I just want your stuff. Give it to me. And he ran. Treated his father like he was dead. And in that culture, what should have happened is the son come back. Some of you have heard this before. The son comes back. He's supposed to grovel. He's supposed to crawl on the dust and eat, literally eat dust as he crawls back to his father. And the father's supposed to stand there and wait and then put his foot on top of his son's head and force the face into the ground because what the son had done was so shameful, so rejecting. 
That's what should have happened. Oh, but that's not who the father was. Do you see, the, that's not who the father was. The father was slow to anger. The, the father, he, he wasn't angry at the son. He was grieved. He was just waiting. He was waiting and waiting and waiting. And that's, that's, what, that's who our God is. He waits and waits and waits. And we see this calamity coming in Joel and we think, see, he's stomping on him right away. No, this is a, this is a God who waits and waits and waits and waits and waits and waits and he's still waiting. He's still patient. He's still slow to anger. He's still waiting. And he's compassionate. Compassionate means he's moved to his very core. That word there for compassion, it's related to the word for womb. Means the love that the love of compassion is the love that a mother would have for her children. You know what, you know what God says? Would a, would a mother forget the baby, the infant, nursing at her breast? But even if she forgets, even if she forgets that suckling child, I will not forget you, God says, because I am compassionate. He's gracious. Do you know God does this? It doesn't make sense. God does this not because he has to, but because he wants to. That word gracious, it means delight. He delights in you. He delights it. He doesn't delight in everything you do, but he delights in you. And he wants to draw you back to delight in him because that's what you were made for. He delights in you. And he's abounding in love. It's a love that's so faithful, a love that's unconditional, that isn't dependent on what we do, that isn't dependent on you rending your heart. It's a love that is unconditional for you. And you want to know how you can know that it's unconditional? You just look at the cross. Even while we were still sinners, the Father hiked up his robes and ran to us. That was shameful for a father to do in that culture. But even while we were still sinners, the God of all heaven took on flesh, took on our humanness, and then he took on our shame. And it doesn't make sense. It's so extravagant, it doesn't make any sense at all. Because some people would die for a good man. Perhaps you'd die for a good man. But, but who, would, who would die for criminals and thieves and rebels? God would. Because this is who he is. Do you know who your father is? Do you know who your real father is? He's one who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and relents from sending calamity for who knows he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing grain offerings and drink offerings for the lord your god you know what chapter one said it said the drink offerings and the grain offerings were gone like they didn't have any grain to offer so their way of relating to god was gone they didn't have any drink to offer there's no wine no drink to offer their, their way of relating to god was gone but our god is so gracious Perhaps he'll make a way for us to be back in relationship with him. That's what Joel's saying. Perhaps he'll, he'll make a way by providing grain and provide, providing wine. Is this triggering anything for anybody? This, this is a picture of Jesus. Jesus who came as the grain offering, he is the bread of life. And he lifted up bread with his disciples and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. And he lifted up a cup of wine and said, this is the wine of the new covenant. It is my blood poured out for you. This is our God. Do you know who he is? 
Because our restoration will come not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And so we get to the last verses here. Blow the trumpets in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children. Those nursing at the breast, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Listen, do you you hear what he's saying? He's like, old and young, bring them all. I, I don't care if it's babies or old people and walkers, bring them all. They all need to be part of this. This isn't just for the priests. This is for everybody to sound the alarm, to, to stop what they're doing. He says, call the, call the bridegroom from his chamber and, and the bride from her chamber. Like Life cannot go. Everybody needs to stop what they're doing. What's the most important day of your life? The day you got married, right? Second most important. day you came to Jesus is most important. Got married to him. But, but one of the most important days of our lives would be the day we got married. And, and Joel says, Forget all that. Life cannot go on just like it always has. Stop. You need to stop what you're doing. Life cannot just go on like normal. Let the priests, what are they all supposed to come to do? The priests, they're supposed to gather in this public place and weep. And weep. And I want to know, like, have we wept? Have we wept? We look at these issues, but like culture and uh, of our culture, like gender and sexuality, and, and it's are, are you on this side or that side? Which one are you on? Because it's black or white. But have we wept? Have we wept? Listen, listen to what they pray. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. That means insignificant. Just a byword, a casual word that you'd use. Let, let them sit up and take notice of your people, Lord. Don't let us be glossed over. Why should they say among the peoples, where is our God? Let me ask you something. Has the church become a byword in this culture? Has the church become a byword? Like, like his culture ha- has these conversations about gender and sexuality and all these other ways that they decide to live out their lives. Has the church become a byword? Do they even know where our God is? Have we shown them? Or are we too busy figuring out who the enemy is? Have we wept? See, we think the fix for the world, the way the world's going to get fixed, we think the first thing that has to happen is for all those sinners out there to repent. All those people on the White House lawn two weeks ago, all those people living lives the way they want to, the the, the fix, the first thing that needs to happen is all of those people need to get to their knees and repent to the God who made them. And Joel says, no, that's not the first thing to happen. Don't get me wrong, that needs to happen, but, but that's not the first thing to happen. The first thing that happens is God's people need to drop to their knees and repent. They need to drop to their knees and repent. Have we? Or have we closed our eyes? Like, are we so sure that God's on our side that our hearts have become callous to what's going on out there in the culture? And we've turned this into an issue. 
and ignore the people that are right in front of us. Joel's point is that we're to be the first responders. You know what first responders are? They're the first ones on the scene when something's going wrong. They're the first ones to show up and say there's something wrong here and we need to address it. And Joel is saying the first thing that needs to happen is not for those sinners to to fall on their knees to God. They don't even know who he is. They haven't seen his ID. Have we shown it to them? We're the first responders. And, and, And the first response should be this, to grieve, to weep, Joel says, to grieve what grieves the heart of God. And have we? Have we grieved what grieves grieves the heart of God. Do we get too busy picking up stones and getting ready to throw them or just saying, well, anything goes. Love is love. And all along, the word of God calls us to wake up and return to him. Calls us to open our eyes Not to pick up a stone, but so that our hearts can be broken. Listen, when was the last time your heart was broken for this? Think about an issue that's this volatile, that the stakes seem this high, that everybody's so upset. When was the last time your heart broke for this? For me, it's been a while. We met together as pastors on on Friday and we're talking about this. And I, I realized for me, it's been a while. My heart was a little calloused. Do we grieve? Do we stop and turn and weep? Not just over the demon we see, but over the deception that's in our culture and the impact, the destruction that it's having. Gender dysphoria isn't new. About a decade ago, you can look back and there were people experiencing gender dysphoria. By the way, anyone going through that is someone we need to have compassion for and should not be ridiculed in any way. But reflect back about 10 years, gender dysphoria affected about 0.01% of the population. And and by and large, it was almost exclusively males that it affected. Anything changed? There's now droves of young girls and teenagers, teenage girls, who are jumping on social media and finding affirmation about those who make these choices. There are teenagers both, and, and the, the numbers have grown immensely in just five to ten years of girls making the, this choice, that they're not the gender that they were born with. Teens and preteens who feel awkward in their skin, you remember that stage? Didn't all of us feel awkward in our skin? Who feel awkward in their skin and lack a sense of belonging and acceptance? Man, wasn't that all of us? And they're seeing these messages and this cultural ideology and seeing it as a fix. Oh, maybe this is what's wrong. I I need to choose a different way. I need to choose a different path. Are we weeping over this? Are we weeping that young women and young men are doing irreparable damage to their bodies through surgeries? 
Are we grieving over this? Are we awake at the growing numbers of people that have those surgeries and are realizing they made the wrong choice? And the people who were supposed to be closest in their lives and giving us, them the greatest wisdom told them to make this choice? And now they decide it was the wrong choice and they go back and they find that the droves of support, the, the vast majority find that the, the droves of support and affirmation that they received when they made the choice the first time are all gone when they make the choice this time because apparently gender is fluid. Only the first choice you make, but it's not fluid after that. Are we weeping at the insanity of our culture? Are we weeping because our culture makes this about gender and having sex? And it's not really about that at the end of the day. It's not really about the gender you feel or loving who you want to love. It's about who's in charge. That, that's what the issue really comes down to. For us as Christ followers, that, that's what the issue should come down to. Who, who's in charge and do we have the authority, the self-governance over our own lives to have the say over everything we are, or, or in some way is our gender that was written in Scripture, created male and female, our gender which was stitched into our very DNA, is it some indication, some wiring that we were actually, that we aren't our own gods and goddesses? That we were, we were created this way on purpose and with intention? And then in spite of our broken feelings, whatever they may be, in spite of our broken temptations, whatever they may be, this is an indication of who's in charge. Are we grieving that they think this is about loving who you want to love and what gender you feel like rather than what it's really about, the God who's in charge of us all? Are we grieving that they think it's about that and that they don't realize that it's about whether we're going to choose to govern ourselves or we're going to choose to allow God to govern us. And I mean, you can see how they get there. You can see how some of us get there. Maybe it's not so bad. Maybe they're not hurting anybody but themselves. Do the research and see. Every little choice along the way makes sense. Well, shouldn't people love who they want to love? Shouldn't we get the choice of, what if I don't feel like a guy? Maybe I am. Shouldn't, I mean, little bit by little bit, it all makes sense unless there's a God who created us for a purpose with intentionality. All of it seems right. Every turn along the way seems right. But there is a way that seems right unto man. And in the end, it still leads to death. I remember reading the story one time about these folks that were driving in a van, they were driving in Arizona, and they were following GPS to get to their destination. And everything was going well on the trip. It all made sense, the trip, until up ahead, you know what they saw? The Grand Canyon. It was, it was right ahead of them. I mean, this road like dead-ended, and there was the canyon. The GPS was actually leading them off a cliff. And every turn up into, the, uh, up into that point in the journey made sense. And they thought they could see ahead the destination that they were getting to, but it landed at 
running them off a cliff. Can we weep because our culture is following this ideology that is leading, and every turn makes sense, and yeah, do what you want to do. And yeah, we should run our own lives. And yeah, it is all about what you feel and how, how you feel good. Every turn makes sense, but in the end, it leads to death. In the end, it's just running off a cliff. And somehow we see that van and it's heading off the cliff. Read this book, it's heading off the cliff. And we think the only option is to stand there and chuck rocks at the van. We think that's the only option. Or to wave and smile at the van. Jesus loves you. He gets you. As they drive off the cliff, can we weep? Can we mourn? Because this is not about what they think it's about. It's not about us stepping on anybody's rights. And it's about a God who designed life to be a certain way and designed us to be in submission to him. And that's the only place life is found. It's found nowhere else. And sometimes this, this culture, you know, you know what the church does sometimes is we ridicule so hard the other side of these issues. Oh, they're not on our side, so they're the enemy. And, and we get this language of fear driving up. Now, now don't hear me wrong. We need to be alarmed at this. There's some, some things that could cause fear in us. But, but we start to use this language that, that wells up fear in us. And we get fearful, and that's what stirs our outrage And that's what starts to make us hopeless. And what do we do in the face of this culture? And, and listen, folks, you know what we're forgetting? We win. God wins. We, we can't forget that. I, I don't know what's going to happen next week in the U.S. government, but I know the end of the story. The sexual revolution doesn't end up winning. Do you, do you know why? It can't deliver on what it promises. It promises freedom. It doesn't. It promises life. There isn't life there. There's people who are figuring that out. If you don't trust anything I say, if you disagree with everything I said about this issue, I would encourage you to go find the stories of the people who are deciding otherwise. The stories of the very people who are living this and saying, I have temptations that I don't want. I feel like I was designed a way that the Bible says I shouldn't, but, but they're making choices to say, you know what? This seems right, but God says this, so I'm going to submit to this. That's what we all have to do in the end anyway. Your temptations don't look so hot either. And we all, at the end of the day, have to get on our knees and submit to a holy God and say, our way is not right. His is, yours is, God, so have your way. So what do we do about the van heading for the cliff? Do we chuck rocks or do we wave and smile? Neither one. What if we got in front of the van and we got down on our knees and we wept? You think they might stop? What if... What if we could actually live out the words of Jesus when he says, be compassionate, for your Father in heaven is compassionate. See, folks, they don't know his ID. They've never seen his driver's license, but God told us. God told us who he was. And it doesn't mean we don't stand for truth. It means we don't chuck rocks and we show him who God is. And we show him why that way is death and this way is life. Have you wept? When was the last time you've wept about this instead of getting outraged and fearful? Can we be among those who grieve?
so that they might see the heart of our Father God. And I just want to invite us to bow our heads. God, we, we sit here before you. And we recognize that you are God and we are not. God, if any of us are willing to get gut-level honest, we'll admit that there are ways, there are issues in our lives, there are opinions that we hold that we've assumed you're on our side. And so we've held those opinions so tightly and stood so strongly that we've chucked rocks and we've forgotten to weep. God, would you... Would you rend our hearts for us? Would you wake us up to what's happening around us? Would you show us the way to have conversations with those that we disagree with about important things, about vital things, about things you're clear on? Would you show us how to have those conversations with compassion? And understanding. God, I thank you that you are a father of compassion. I thank you that you stand strongly opposed to sin and unholiness in our lives. And at the same time, you stand firmly beside us in our brokenness. Jesus, you did that. How did you do that? We don't know how on our own, but show us the way. Lord, make us more aware of those heading off a cliff. In the name of doing whatever they want to do. Teach us what it means for you to be our Lord again. Lord, you, your word your word says that we are our lives are to be an altar to you. That we are to offer up ourselves. Lord, we don't have anything else to offer. So, Lord, we bring before you our positions. We bring before you our opinions. We bring before you our agendas. We bring before you our reputations. 
We lay them at your feet, Lord. God, I ask over these moments that you would scour us and purify us. Form us into the people who carry your heart and reveal your image to the world. Family, we're just going to enter a moment of worship and surrender to God. I would invite you to Sit, stand, kneel. As we give our lives and ourselves back to him.